2: The last time this happened was in October of 1995. Ten defendants spent eight months on trial in a Manhattan courtroom accused of conspiring to levy a war of urban terrorism against the United States. There was an outburst from one of the two American defendants when the jury finally announced its verdict.
3: Police were all over the Manhattan federal courthouse as the largest terrorism trial in U.S. history ended after one week of deliberations. The jurors, known only by number, found blind Muslim sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman and nine of his followers guilty of seditious conspiracy to wage a war of urban terrorism to pressure the U.S. to change its Middle East policy. With the sheikh as the spiritual leader, the terrorist plot included bombing five New York landmarks within a 12-square-mile area in the space of 10 minutes, and there was a plot to murder Egypt's president, Hosni Mubarak. Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman and El Sayed Nosir face life in prison without parole. The eight other defendants face at least 20 years. Ten people
2: were found guilty of seditious conspiracy against the American government in that trial. Seditious conspiracy is a big charge. It is an old one. It dates back to the Civil War era. The statute defines it this way. If two or more persons conspire to overthrow, put down or destroy by force the government of the United States or to levy war against it or to oppose by force the authority thereof or by force to prevent, hinder or delay the execution of any law of the United States, those convicted can face up to 20 years in prison. It is rare to see this charge filed. It is even more rare to get an actual conviction. That case from 1995 was the last seditious conspiracy case that ended in a conviction. And that is why it was such a big deal in January when the Justice Department charged 11 members of a far-right militia group called the Oath Keepers, including their leader, a man named Stuart Rhodes, when they charged him with seditious conspiracy, among other charges. The Justice Department argued that the defendants organized a violent attempt to stop the Democratic transfer of power on January 6th to oppose American laws governing our democracy by force. Two of the 11 pleaded guilty, and they're cooperating with the U.S. government. Four of the 11 face trial starting next week, leaving the five defendants whose fates were announced today. During the eight weeks of this trial, the government prosecutors argue that those five defendants concocted a plan for an armed rebellion to shatter a bedrock of American democracy. Prosecutors argued that the Oath Keepers plotted against President Biden because they didn't like the 2020 election results. The jury was told that Rhodes desperately tried to get in touch with then-President Trump after the 2020 election to convince him to seize voting machines and invoke the Insurrection Act to stay in power. In a letter to Trump, Rhodes wrote, if you fail to act while you are still in office, we the people will have to fight a bloody war against these two illegitimate Chinese puppets. The puppets he was referring to were President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. Earlier this month, Rhodes testified in his own defense. In discussing his hope for Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act, he claimed that anti-fascists had somehow attacked the White House and that he wanted to make clear President Trump could rely on us and other veterans to protect the White House. Prosecutors presented evidence, including text messages of Rhodes telling his followers to prepare for civil war. Quote, Trump needs to go for it and do his duty. He should do it now. But if he does wait till January 6th, then he should still do it. And we need to be ready to support him 100 percent and then some. We will then be in a brutal civil war. More of the military will side with Biden because the traitor generals will tell the troops that Congress just made it official. Biden is president. Trump will have two weeks to seize the evidence of treason and do the massive data dump to show all Americans and especially the military who is a traitor from top to bottom. Be ready to roll in any way we are needed. Get your affairs in order and get yourself and your gear squared away. That is what he wrote. Prosecutors also showed evidence that Rhodes, who never entered the Capitol building himself, that he was in touch with some of his followers minutes before they broke into the building. And they argued that Rhodes was planning for more violent action until Oath Keepers started getting arrested for their roles on January 6th. In closing arguments last week, one of the Justice Department's lead prosecutors, a man named Jeffrey Nessler, he said, they claimed to be saving the republic, but they fractured it instead. After all that, the jury took about one week to deliberate, and today they returned a verdict. They found Stuart Rhodes and another oath keeper who ran the group's Florida chapter, a man named Kelly Meggs, found them both guilty of seditious conspiracy. They acquitted Rhodes of two other conspiracy charges, and they found three other defendants not guilty of sedition. A split verdict in the most serious charge brought so far in the 900-plus criminal prosecutions of January 6 insurrectionists. Rhodes lawyers say they will appeal, but as it stands, Rhodes may face up to 20 years in prison. This is a big moment in our country's history. It is the first time in 27 years that we have seen a successful sedition prosecution. And it has been 68 years since we have seen Americans convicted of sedition. Four more members of the Oath Keepers go to trial next week on similar charges. And in just a few weeks, another jury will have another chance to weigh in on the question of whether a different militia group is also guilty of sedition for its actions on January 6th. While we await that trial, the jury made clear today what happened on January 6th was a violent act against the United States of America, not, as the RNC once called it, legitimate political discourse. And those who were involved in orchestrating it, people like Stuart Rhodes, they have now been found guilty of one of the rarest charges our country levies. All of this tonight casts the defense of January 6 insurrectionists in a slightly different light.
3: Even calling it an insurrection, uh, it was, and by
4: and large, it was, it was all it was peaceful protest. I thought everybody in the country bared some responsibility based upon what has been going on, the riots on the streets, the others. We're actually going to go walk the grounds that that patriotic Americans walked from the White House to the Capitol, who had no intent of breaking the law or doing
5: violence. I also asked him about if we can, if if he would support investigations into the treatment of pre-trial January
1: 6th defendants. That's something that's also very important. People that walked in the Capitol
2: and have been held in jail for nearly two years, while Antifa and BLM riots, rioters go free and are never held accountable. The Senate Homeland Security Committee has just released its November report on the rising threat of domestic terrorism. It found that incidents of domestic terrorism have increased over the past two decades, and that increase, quote, has been predominantly perpetrated by white supremacist and anti-government extremist individuals and groups. So as you hear reporting about Kanye West telling former President Trump to free January 6th defendants, people who carried Confederate flags into the Capitol and erected gallows and a noose outside, while people try and talk to the former president about paying January 6th defendants legal fees, while when all, when all of that news is swirling, it is important to remember this verdict today and what it tells us about the threats America faces from the white supremacist, anti-government groups that are willing to support the former president by force. Joining us now is Congressman Adam Schiff, Democrat of California, a member of the January 6th Committee, as well as the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Congressman, thank you so much for being here tonight on a really important night for American democracy. I wonder if you think we are finally... Going to be able to reframe January 6th for what it was, courtesy of these guilty verdicts this evening?
4: I think these certainly contribute to exactly that. Uh, you know, I think that leading up to this January 6th committee also played a very important role in establishing what took place, that this was a concerted plot to interfere with a peaceful transfer of power. But tonight, you know, a, a dramatic exclamation point. A big victory for the Justice Department, a big victory for justice and the American people to be convicted of using force uh, to overthrow the government, to interfere with the lawful functions of the government, as you pointed out, is very rare. It's a very serious charge uh, and it will have other repercussions beyond you know the, the public impression. And that is there, there, as you point out, there's another trial coming up, another couple trials, uh, one that includes a different white nationalist violent group. Uh, And the defendants in that case may uh, may be thinking, you know, perhaps we ought to plead guilty uh, considering how this trial went. So some big impacts here. There may be more people willing to cooperate in light of this jury decision.
2: What do you think the implications are for President Trump and his potential culpability for January 6th, given the fact that people who were in touch with his emissaries, if you will, have now been charged and, and found guilty of seditious conspiracy?
4: Well, the justice department uh, went for this powerful case of seditious conspiracy, uh, and it shows the department's not afraid to bring some of the most serious charges. Uh, and now they've got to look at, okay, who was involved in organizing, inciting, inspiring, giving aid, giving aid and comfort to those involved in seditious conspiracy. So I think it's you know it has consequences going up the ladder of responsibility. Uh, but I, I also think that uh, the, the former president has got to be very concerned about other statutes that apply to these offenses, uh, you know, like obstructing the lawful uh, functions of the Congress, which these defendants were also convicted of, which a California judge has already said there's evidence against the former president. Uh, so, uh, you know, finally, this, these are people the president is ta- talking about pardoning should he ever hold office again? Uh, and the idea that a president of the United States uh, would be dining with white nationalists after this event or even before this event or at any other time, but also talking about pardoning these people who have now been convicted of uh, conspiring to overthrow the government with force, uh, you know, that ought to be disqualifying for anyone, including him.
2: Um, Congressman, what of the the committee work in terms of January 6? There was some suggestion today that the committee may have information they may not be aware of that could change their calculus. Do you have new information? Is there anything that emerged in all of this, this being the Stuart Rhodes trial for seditious conspiracy as well as his code, as, as co-defendants, that has changed your calculus or that you could foresee changing your calculus?
4: Uh, you know, we have certainly learned by what the Justice Department is doing uh, in the sense that we watch what they charge in indictments. So we watch the evidence that they present at trial. It helps inform and fill in some of the gaps in our knowledge. Uh, and I think conversely, um, the hearings that we've held, the evidence that we've produced, and when we submit our report uh, and we release uh, transcripts and other materials, it will help uh, further strengthen the government's case. So they've been synergistic in that respect. Uh, in terms of whether, the you know, the jury verdict itself changes our thinking, you know, I think it really doesn't change our thinking so much as, you know, validate exactly what we've been presenting to the country, which is this wasn't some kind of spontaneous, you know, riot getting out of control or being people being swept away by emotion. No, this was a plot uh, conducted in advance to use force to try to stop the peaceful transfer of power. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, this just highlights how premeditated it was. Uh, and when you add the evidence that we've submitted to the public about the president's knowledge that these people were armed and dangerous. Uh, and, and you know, as he said on January 6th, uh, he wanted the effing mags taken down because he was fine with those people marching to the Capitol with weapons because they weren't there to hurt him.
2: I got to ask you, because there's been some reporting about what the public is actually going to see in terms of reports from the committee when your work is done. And there's been some reporting that the focus is going to be largely on President Trump. Given what we have today with the Oath Keepers, their role in all of this, given the questions that are outstanding about the security apparatus, and we'll be talking later on the show about the Secret Service and the sort of system-wide failures that led to January 6th. What should the public expect from the committee in terms of the totality of the findings that will be released once the work is done?
4: You know, our charter was a broad charter uh, to set out the facts and circumstances that led to the violence, uh, the the reasons why uh, the Capitol, uh, law enforcement were not better prepared for what took place, you know, who was responsible, who was culpable. Uh, And so I think our report ought to reflect what our mission was and we also ought to be guided by you know the function of our committee which is not just to inform the country but also to prescribe remedies to protect us going forward uh, and and that's a broad charter so i'm certainly urging that the report be as broad uh, as possible uh, and i'm sure we will reach a consensus uh, on that we also want to make sure that everything is documented uh, that everything is factual uh, and and i think part of our success in the past has been making sure everything is nailed down, and we want to do that in the report, its appendices, and whatever accompanies it as well.
2: I just have one last question for you. I know that the committee was speaking with Tony Ornato, who is the head of the president's Secret Service Detail, also worked as the deputy White White House chief of staff. He's at the center of a lot of controversy. Did you hear anything in his testimony today that conflicted with the account we got from Cassidy Hutchinson regarding the fighting over whether Secret Service would take the president back to the Capitol on January 6th.
4: Uh, you know, as you might imagine, I can't really go into the contents of his testimony. Uh, you know, we did uh, interview him. It was a lengthy interview. Uh, we'll, I think, have things to say in our report uh, about uh, the testimony and, and what we find credible, what we don't find credible and, and why, if we don't find certain testimony credible, uh, we, we, come, we have come to that opinion. But I'm going to let the report speak for itself uh, when that comes out. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, um, we're also going to be discussing what kind of referrals to make. And here I don't want to suggest anything with respect to Mr. Ornato. But uh, we're going to be r- reporting to the Justice Department things uh, that we think they ought to look into potentially. Uh, and that is also a matter of our discussion. And we're going to wrap that up very soon. We, we hope to put our pen down, uh, submit the report to the printer's in the near future uh, so that we can get that to the American people.
2: Well, the American public, including this part of the American public, greatly await that report. Uh, Congressman Adam Schiff of California and one of the January 6th and intelligence and a member of the January 6th Committee and Intelligence Committees. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for, as always, your thoughts and wisdom, Congressman. Thank you. Coming up, the conviction today of Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes on the charge of seditious conspiracy. That may have been the headline development here, but it was not the only news coming out of the January 6th investigations. Today, as we just talked about, Trump's top Secret Service official and his speechwriter, they were both questioned by investigators in relation to the attack on the Capitol. We'll have details on that and more coming up next.
0: everyone it's ted from consumer cellular the guy in the orange sweater and this is your wake up call if you're paying too much for wireless service you don't have to keep having that nightmare consumer cellular has the same fast reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost so why keep spending more than you have to seriously wake up and call one eight 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 freedom or visit consumercellular.com
1: savings based on cost of consumer cellular single line one five and ten gig data plans with a limited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by t-mobile and verizon january 2024
2: Today's guilty verdicts of seditious conspiracy aren't just the highest profile guilty verdicts the DOJ has secured. They're also the most serious and rare in the department's sprawling January 6th investigation. Let's take a moment to step back here and contextualize that investigation. In the nearly 23 months since the attack on the Capitol, over 900 individuals have been arrested in nearly all 50 states. Nearly 450 of those people have pleaded guilty to a variety of federal charges. Roughly 300 have been charged with corruptly obstructing, influencing, or impeding an official proceeding or attempting to do so. And today we get to add five to that statistic now, as the five oath keepers were found guilty of obstruction of an official proceeding. The New York Times appropriately reminds us that today's guilty verdict is the first time in nearly 20 trials related to the Capitol attack that a a jury decided the violence that erupted on January 6th was the product of an organized conspiracy. And that part is the really important part. The Oath Keepers didn't operate in a vacuum. Their reach and their contacts, they were far and wide. Remember that during the trial, a former Oath Keepers member testified that the group's leader, Stuart Rhodes, told him he had had a contact in the Secret Service. This former militia member testified that he heard Stuart Rhodes in September of 2020 ahead of a Trump rally talking to someone he believed to be a member of the Secret Service. The Secret Service even confirmed that later on, saying, quote, it's not uncommon for various organizations to contact us concerning security restrictions and activities that are permissible in proximity to our protected sites. Court filings in advance of the trial also revealed that Stuart Rhodes tried to connect with Trump on the evening of January 6th and spoke to a purported middleman trying to get this message to the president. Call up militia groups like the Oath Keepers and stop the peaceful transfer of power. Prosecutors allege that one of the other members of the group, quote, heard Rhodes repeatedly implore the individual to tell President Trump to call upon groups like the Oath Keepers to forcibly oppose the transfer of power. But who was that individual? Who was the interlocutor between a right wing paramilitary leader, now guilty of seditious conspiracy, and the President of the United States? It is against that backdrop that former Secret Service agent and White House official Tony Ornato, who's at the center of a lot of controversy, that he met behind closed doors today with the January 6th committee. Now You will remember that Tony Ornato, who had previously testified twice to the committee, oversaw Trump's movements on the day of the Capitol attack. Mr. Ornato was thrown into the spotlight during a public hearing in June when former White House staffer Cassidy Hutchinson told the world that Ornato told her Trump got physical when his service detail refused to take him to the Capitol on January 6th. While some Secret Service officials have disputed whether or not that physical altercation happened, that bombshell testimony compelled the committee to call Mr. Ornato in for a third interview today to question him about his prior testimony. There remain a lot of unanswered questions about what exactly was going on inside the White House and inside the overall security apparatus on January 6th. Joining us now is Carol Lenning, Pulitzer Prize-winning national investigative reporter for The Washington Post and author of Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. Carol, thank you for joining us today. There are so many questions I have about where we are in terms of getting to the bottom of what exactly transpired between Trump and his Secret Service detail, in particular on January 6th. The fact that Tony Ornato is back at the committee for a third time, what does that tell you? And do you have any reporting on what is happening behind closed doors vis-a-vis Ornato?
3: I have a little bit, Alex. I don't think it's going to sate you based on the questions I've heard you asking smartly tonight. Um, But what I do know is this went on for hours. I do know that uh, he was in a remote interview with his private lawyer by his side. You know, Tony Arnato, who used to be the head of President Trump's security detail and then was the White House deputy chief of staff helping Donald Trump set up events and campaign rallies to get reelected. Very unusual. He is no longer in the government and has retired. So he's a private lawyer. He was asked repeatedly about a lot of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, including Did you, Tony Arnato, tell anyone or tell Cassidy Hutchinson, as she testified under oath, that there was some kind of altercation in which then President Trump lunged at a steering wheel inside the car he was being driven from his speech to the, he hoped, the Capitol, uh, and that he lunged at his security detail leader? because that detail leader, Bobby Engel, so disappointed and infuriated Trump and told him, I'm sorry, I'm not taking you. We're going to the West Wing. We do not have the assets to protect you at the Capitol. That should have been obvious. There was a mob heading that way. But that's overwhelmingly the centerpiece of the questions, as well as what did Tony Arnato know about the violence that was communicated to President Trump that day? How much did Donald Trump know about what the Secret Service was finding on the ground the day of the rally? You know, there were weapons, there were firearms, pistols, rifles, there were flagpoles, there were spears, um, there there were people carrying bear spray, there were people wearing bulletproof vests. How much did... Donald Trump know about the danger and the weaponry in the mob of supporters that he eventually encouraged to march on the Capitol with him. Carol, it seems like there are
2: levels to what is being sought here. One is the practicalities of what the president knew, what he actually did, what kind of firsthand account Ornato can provide. But then it feels like there's another level to this, which is the involvement or the complicity. I don't know if that word is too loaded to use of the Secret Service apparatus itself, right? I mean, it seems to me, at least from the outside, that there are real questions about how diligently the Secret Service was relaying security threats to, for example, Mike Pence's office, the degree to which they were potentially trying to protect the president in terms of, you know, casting aside allegations like the one Mrs. Hutchinson uh, testified to about the president being violently eager to return to the Capitol. I mean, is that something that Ornato is testifying to, do you think? I mean, I wonder if you believe the committee is trying to get to the bottom of the Secret Service's role in all of this as well.
3: Well, it's a great question because Tony Ornato, as well as other agents, senior officials, I should say, in the Secret Service, have been asked, Alex, by the January 6th committee in the past, and possibly again today, uh, about the degree to which they realized the, the threat that was sort of in motion right in front of all national security officials and heading towards the Capitol. For days and weeks before January 6th, the Secret Service, the FBI, and the Department of Homeland Security were all on alert to various, um, I wouldn't call them formal threat assessments, but I would call them guardians, alerts, and red flags that that danger was coming, that people who said they wanted to attack the Capitol with weapons People who said, get ready to draw down on law enforcement were headed towards that rally that day with the president. Um, All of those warnings were, to my mind, quite frightening and prescient. Did the Secret Service not take those seriously enough? Uh, many agents and senior leaders have been asked that question, and Tony Ornato is a rightful person to ask that question as well, because they were sending, essentially, one of their most important protectees, the vice president, to a building that was targeted for attack, according to all the intel that was coming in to the Secret Service and other parts of, the, of, our, of our government that are supposed to protect our country.
2: Yeah, you can't get away—that's an inescapable reality, right? I Just, Carol, one more question for you, which is, what do you think the downstream effects of this seditious conspiracy verdicts are, as it concerns other folks who are in the hot seat, if you will, in terms of these sprawling DOJ investigations? Do you think this increases their pressure to, for them to cooperate? I mean, what do you think is the practical effect of the sort of landmark verdicts we have this evening?
3: So I think, again, to use your wonderful word, word contextualize, I think it cannot be under understated. Um, I, I, forgive me. It cannot be overstated how important it is that the Department of Justice won these cases, won conviction, at least against two Oath Keeper leaders on a charge that was pretty dusty in the statute book and many people thought was too novel, too bold a charge to bring. Hadn't been tested very recently in our modern history, not in your or my lifetime. And and here we had a situation that was literally unprecedented. And they convicted someone for using violence to essentially attack a government proceeding that was an attack on our democracy, attack on our country. That has downstream effects in one respect that I can think of right off the bat, Alex, which is when you convict someone like Stuart Rhodes of an organized violent conspiracy, the next potential charge is who else was involved in organizing a conspiracy to block the peaceful transfer of power. And if you've won on seditious conspiracy with an individual who used force, your chances of winning in prosecuting somebody uh, might look a little brighter today Or someone who was involved in a nonviolent conspiracy. And we don't know who those people are at this moment. We don't know what the Department of Justice uh, has uncovered in its investigation of what I often call the white-collar conspiracy. But That should be, I think, um, a little bit of a, a wind under the wings of the Department of Justice as they consider what to do about that other conspiracy they're investigating.
2: I would say maybe even a lot of wind under their wings. Carol Lenning, National Investigative Reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you, as always, Carol. Great to have
3: you tonight. Thank you, Alex.
2: We have some other big, important news to share tonight. Good news. The Senate, in a bipartisan landmark vote, has now passed the Respect for Marriage Act, which would codify into law federal protections for same-sex and interracial marriages. The bill would also repeal the Defense of Marriage Act, which was a law signed by Bill Clinton in 1996, one that discriminated against same-sex couples. Tonight's vote, which passed with the support of 12 Republicans, means the bill will now move to the House, where it is expected to pass next week, before it heads to President Biden's desk for his signature. Just ahead, what if I told you there was a little-known club where you could wine and dine Supreme Court justices and maybe even get in a good word with them about your favorite issues? That
1: place actually exists. I will tell you about it next.
2: Remember when Trump became president, how people started visiting Mar-a-Lago and booking rooms at Trump's D.C. hotel so they could get in good with all the MAGA people, so they could rub shoulders with the Trump kids and, and maybe even get a glimpse of the president himself? Well, as it happens, the Supreme Court sort of has its own version of that. It's not a hotel. It's an organization, and it's called the Supreme Court Historical Society, and it's been around for decades. Earlier this month, the uh, New York Times published an eye-popping investigation based off an interview with a man named Reverend Rob Schenck. Reverend Shank is a former anti-abortion activist who told the Times that for years he recruited wealthy conservative couples to try and get close to conservative Supreme Court justices in an effort to advance the anti-abortion crusade. And Reverend Schenck did this by encouraging these couples to wine and dine the justices, to invite them to their vacation homes and their private clubs, and most importantly, this is key here, to contribute an estimated minimum $125,000 to something called the Supreme Court Historical Society. And there they would get a chance to mingle with the justices at the society functions. Quote, Mr. Schenck gave his stealth missionaries close instruction. The justices were more likely to let their guard down at the Historical Society's annual dinners because they assumed attendees had been properly vetted. See a justice, boldly approach, Shank told the couples. If given the opportunity, bear witness to biblical truth, but don't push it, he said. Your presence alone telegraphs a very important signal to the justices. Christians are concerned about the court and the issues that come before it. Now, whether this strategy actually worked is yet to be determined. Whether it was the presence of Christian minglers that ultimately got the court to, for example, strike down Roe, that is all unknown. After all, Schenck was trying it to attempt to influence justices who were already ardently pro-life. But what is Undeniable here, and what is frankly pretty shocking, is that certain right-wing activists like Reverend Schenck have been successful in their attempts to gain special access to Supreme Court justices with the express purpose of pressuring them through whining and dining them and donations to their favorite causes. We know this because Mr. Schenck also told The Times that one of these wealthy couples actually managed to become friends with Justice Samuel Alito and his wife. And through this friendship, the couple learned in advance about the court's decision in the landmark 2014 case Burwell versus Hobby Lobby, which, if you remember, concerned contraception and the religious rights of corporations. Well, I mean, then when you look at it that way, $125,000 donation to the Supreme Court Historical Society, that seems like a pretty good deal. For a heads up on a landmark Supreme Court case. Now, Justice Alito says there's nothing untoward happening here. And that this is just the kind of stuff that good friends talk about. Quote, my wife and I became acquainted with the rights. That's the couple in question. Some years ago because of their strong support for the, guess, wait for it, the Supreme Court Historical Society. And since then, we have had a casual and purely social relationship. But not everybody agrees with that. On November 20th, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and Congressman Hank Johnson wrote a letter asking the court to look into the justices conduct and to determine whether Justice Alito or any other justices violated ethical rules as part of the events described. And yesterday they received a letter in response from the court's legal counsel, a man named Ethan Torrey, which repeated Justice Alito's denial and pointedly ignored the questions put forward by these two lawmakers it also omitted any details about which justices might have been whined and dined as part of Reverend Shank's alleged scheme. Instead, the letter said, quote, the term gift is defined to exclude social hospitality based on personal relationships, as well as modest items such as food and refreshments offered as a matter of social hospitality. Social hospitality. Sounds like something you get at Mar-a-Lago, too. We will keep an eye on this story. Stay tuned. We are just one week from Election Day in the state of Georgia, where a crucial runoff is going to determine how much power Democrats hold in the next Congress. Voters have already shattered turnout records from the previous runoff election in Georgia. Yesterday, more than 300,000 voters cast ballots in a single day of voting. Now, that is more early votes than have been cast on a single day in any previous Georgia election, including presidential ones. And it could be a sign of record enthusiasm this year. And, but it may also be a symptom of voter suppression. Let's explain. Last year, Georgia Republicans passed a fairly draconian anti-voting law, which, among other things, dramatically shortened the number of days that voters have to cast ballots in a runoff. The law cut the early voting time during a runoff election down from a minimum of 16 days to a minimum of just five days. And while that does not seem to have deterred people from voting in this election, it has led to images like this one. Long lines of voters waiting to exercise their constitutional rights in an election, trying to get those early ballots in with simply fewer days to do so. Data from the Georgia Secretary of State's office show that Black voters and women make up a disproportionate share of the people who are voting early. On Sunday, Senator Warnock himself waited in line for an hour to cast a vote in his own election. Today, wait times at some polling locations around the state stretched as long as two hours. Again, those are lines just for early voting in a runoff election three weeks after the midterms. Now, right now, the two candidates in that race are approaching approaching the final stretch of this campaign in dramatically different ways. Senator Raphael Warnock held six separate events this weekend across the Atlanta metro area and is scheduled to hold a campaign rally with former President Obama on Thursday. By contrast, Herschel Walker took a six-day break from campaigning and has not taken a question from a campaign trail reporter since the month of October. It's just, it's November 29th today. And the New York Times reports today that former President Trump will not be joining Herschel Walker on the campaign trail before Election Day. He's instead hosting campaign calls with supporters. In response to the news of Trump staying out of Georgia, one Walker aide told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, quote, Thank God. But even without Trump around, the Walker campaign still has to deal with its second biggest liability, Herschel Walker. The Warnock campaign recently released this new ad featuring voters reacting to Walker in his own
5: words. The other night I was watching this movie, I was watching this movie called Fright Night, Freak Night, or some kind of night, but it was about vampires. I don't know if you know vampires are cool people. What the hell
1: is he talking about?
5: Is he serious? Is he for real? A werewolf can kill a vampire. Did you know that? I never knew that, so I don't want to be a vampire anymore. I want to be a werewolf.
0: Yeah, y'all serious about this, right? So
5: I've been telling this
0: little story
5: about this bull out in the field. What? six cows. And
4: three of them are pregnant.
0: There's no substance. There's nothing. So you know you got something going on. It makes me wanna laugh. And then it makes me think we're in trouble.
5: Our good air decided to float over to China. Bad air. So when China gets our good air, their bad air gotta move.
0: No one's watching this and being like, oh man, that guy's got it together. It is embarrassing. Let's call it what it is. It is embarrassing.
2: Let's call it what it is. It is embarrassing. Joining us now is Tia Mitchell, Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tia, thanks for being here. How do you read these early voting numbers? Is this a matter of necessity, enthusiasm, or a combination of both?
5: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's a combination of voters wanting to pass their ballots and participate in this runoff and having a much more limited time period to do so. So, you know, usually before an election in Georgia, there are usually two weeks of early voting, especially that happened during the last runoff. That was nine weeks instead of four weeks. So with less time to vote, because voting couldn't get underway until the previous election was certified. So that even condensed the window further. With less time to vote, there are less opportunities for early voting. And what we're seeing is how popular this method of voting is voters don't want to wait on Election Day. They like the flexibility of early voting. But unfortunately, with this condensed window, there isn't as much flexibility, which is leading to the longer line. What
2: what do you make of the decision not to have former President Trump campaign in the state of Georgia from all outside assessments? This is a turnout election. And Trump, for all of his negatives, does have a skill at turning out the base. What lesson do you draw from the fact that the GOP does not want him in the state?
5: Yeah, it's you know, there's a lesson and there's the same thing is happening on the Democratic side when it comes with uh, President Biden. What they're calculating is the risks and rewards of having arguably, you know, the leader of the party on the Democratic side, President Biden, on the Republican side, former President Trump. Yes, they can rile up the base, energize the base, but they can also really rile up the opposition, the other side, where they're not popular. So both candidates have decided that the leaders of their party should stay away. Um, Trump and Biden did not campaign with their candidates during the general election and are not planning to campaign with the candidates during this runoff election. You know, for Trump, I think it's more pronounced because Herschel Walker is so closely aligned with Trump. He was Trump's handpicked candidate for this race. Uh, Trump took a lot of credit for Herschel Walker winning the primary. But yet Trump has not physically campaigned with Herschel Walker, um, despite their friendship, despite their long alliance politically and personally. And so that really is a contract there. Yeah, I guess I would push back a little bit on that as far as whether
2: you see Biden and Trump as the same sort of liability, if you will. If the idea is to juice turnout, you try and bring the biggest star you can. And for all intents and purposes, that person is still Barack Obama. One wonders whether Joe Biden would get the same turnout as his predecessor. Trump seems to be more like political kryptonite. I mean, isn't the Warnock campaign taking out ads that specifically just show the Trump endorsement and then it's effectively a mic drop like this is the guy that Trump endorsed. Take your
5: pick. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they're using, as you showed, they're using Herschel Walker's words against him. But there are also ads, as you noted, that highlight the Trump endorsement of Herschel Walker, which came as recently as when Trump announced he was running for president again. And he said, by the way, you know, don't forget to vote for Herschel Walker if you're in Georgia. So, yes, Trump is much more, you know, problematic for Republicans than than whether it's Obama or Biden or whoever you can name on the Democratic side is for sure. Trump is much more polarizing. Um, But you can't Herschel Walker can't avoid the Trump factor. You know, he can't avoid the fact that he was Trump's handpicked candidate for this race. He can't avoid that. You know. Trump was instrumental in his career and all the all the ways that they've been aligned over the decade that they've known each other. But what Herschel Walker and his uh, advisors have said is that physically appearing Trump, that's a bridge too far that we think could be problematic. So please stay away.
2: For now, he looks like he's playing ball on that. Tia Mitchell, Washington correspondent for the AJC, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Thanks for your time tonight, Tia. Thank you. We have one more story for you tonight. Team USA soccer fans rejoice. The team won a hard-fought victory in its World Cup match against Iran today. We'll have more details right after the break. Congratulations to the U.S. men's national team who have advanced to the knockout stage of the World Cup after winning their game against Iran today. The stakes were stratospheric in my house following the team's draw with England that made today's game a must win in order to advance the next round. News of today's win so elated the president that he rushed back to the podium to announce that the U.S. won just after he delivered remarks on the economy in Michigan. The U.S. will play the Netherlands this Saturday at 10 a.m. Eastern. To my Dutch stepfather, Joost, I say good luck. That does it for us. We'll see you
1: tomorrow. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best.